0: And so the musical experience, and speaking to you now, and being in a state of prayer, and working with a client, and writing a post or a poem, they're all the same. Because they are all an expression of the same source.
1: peel back the ball crap and brush away any photoshopping to give you an unfiltered look at what it's like to live a coaching life now one thing or perhaps one of many things i love about this profession is the diversity there are all kinds of coaches coaches for every kind of client and such a rich diversity in people's backgrounds and what they bring to this beautiful profession Today's guest is an award-winning performing artist. His career as a jazz pianist has taken him to 17 countries, I think, throughout Asia, Europe and the Americas. He's performed with some of the world's brightest jazz stars and he's also an educator, a composer, an author, workshop facilitator, life transformation coach, the list goes on. He's just such a lovely, lovely guy. And he's someone whose views and opinions of uh, you know some of what's been happening in the world of late I I greatly respect I'm hoping we'll explore some of that too I'm sure we will So absolutely honoured, um, absolutely honoured to welcome my friend Harry Pickens to the Coaching Life podcast. Welcome, Harry.
0: Welcome, Phil. It's an honour and delight to be in your presence once again.
1: Thank you. Oh goodness, I'm so happy to have you here. So happy to uh, as as we were talking about before we started recording really i i come across people that i just think oh i would love to share this person share this person with with the people that listen to this podcast yeah so um yeah so much for us to talk about and explore not least what going what is going on in the world has been going on in the world um, really for hundreds of years of course and i'd love to hear more about your experiences in music and touring and uh, yeah how that was rippling through all parts of life. You know, there was something, um, I heard you say, I think it was on a video, music is a vehicle for connecting. I love that. I love that. I'm sure we'll come back to that, but I want to give our listeners some context and you know, this is the coaching life podcast. So let's dive in there and start with coaching. What got you into the coaching profession? How did you come across it and what got you into it?
0: That's a really good question. You know, um, I began my professional life 40 years ago as a teacher, grades kindergarten to 12th grade, and also taught college part-time a bit and did some volunteer work with elders. So I was teaching all levels of people, and I was always passionate, even in my 20s. I learned about, I read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, and I read a biography of Edgar Casey, and I learned about Paramahansa Yogananda, and all of these different tributaries that connected to this essential phenomenon of being human which is how can we optimize the life we have while we're living it and so teaching led to consulting i was also performing at the time but teaching led to consulting and organizational development work and training and then i had a experience about 10 years or so ago i was teaching college students and I developed a student success course for mostly music students, but for all students, and a course in positive psychology called A Course in Thriving, where we looked at the history of people who were able to overcome the odds, whether it was somebody like a Nelson Mandela, 26 years in prison, or a Beethoven, who goes deaf and becomes a great composer, or Christopher Reeve, who started out as a Superman, playing Superman in the movies, but became Superman after his accident. I was passionately interested And helping my students unhook the keys to human potential and so out of that individual work eventually emerged the coaching you know first it was just working with one person the second i also had debilitating stage fright when i was much younger i wouldn't sleep for a week i would throw up for days and i was a nervous wreck in performance and if you want a performance career you know i'm sure many people who are listening right now you've had something you really really wanted. But there was some block, something in the way of it. And I wanted to become a professional musician. And the thing that was blocking me was the stage fright. And so that started this obsessive curiosity. Everything I could learn about neuroscience and psychology and sports psychology and hypnosis, et cetera, I explored. And I was able to eventually turn debilitating stage fright into deep confidence. And so I helped, fast forward, I helped my college students do the same thing. You know, college music students or performers or actors who are having those difficulties. And out of the working specifically exclusively with performers, that eventually expanded to working with people who were experiencing blocks and difficulties and challenges in other areas of life. And that's where my coaching coaching work began. Then the last couple of years, I only work with a very small number of clients. Now, most of the work that I do is with groups. But the core, the center, the focus, the foundation of it all, Phil, is something we were talking about a little bit before before you started the podcast, which is how can we individually connect really deeply and powerfully with the inner source of wisdom that can guide us to living the life we were born to live? And that's the kind of work that I do both in my teaching and my mentoring of young people and in my coaching, yeah, so beautiful,
1: so beautiful, and it's yet another of those stories into coaching. That, of course, when we look backwards, you can see like the inevitability, actually, of, of that move into into this profession, into this profession. Well, it's, it's the
0: the profession itself, at its best, is about helping people remember who they are. And what's possible for them. And I realized that's what I've been doing since I was a child in my relationships, interactions and teaching. So coaching is simply one more facet of that larger diamond, which is a life dedicated to helping people remember who they are.
1: And there's something there as well about like i i guess an inner conflict between what we want and seeing the blockage you mentioned about stage fright good grief so um can you can you speak to that a little bit more because of course i mean that in a, in a way i'm, I'm sure I'm going, to, I'm going to be using this in the future harry like as, a, as an analogy that um there is something that seems to be an innate talent i mean that gosh i don't know i i I tinkle a little bit on the keyboard and I play a little bit of the guitar and sometimes people say, Oh, you're really talented. But actually that's just come from a little bit of practice. Not very much. So I don't know whether we have a natural ability or whether we can develop it, whether everybody has it. That's not really my question. Actually. I'm I'm curious whether you can speak a little bit more about that, that inner conflict between that real desire. Like I think we could term that there's a God, There's something that's God given there for us to do in the world. And yet we create a story that keeps us from being that. And in that case, the story of stage fright. So,
0: well, you know, I, I I think the idea of blocks goes beyond the idea of stories. One of the things I've been diving into in the last 10, 15 years is the neurobiology of how we become who we become. And what happens is that when we're children, when we're young children, we have experiences that our brain encodes for various reasons as life threatening. And the part of our brain that encodes those life threatening experiences operates much more rapidly than our logical, rational, story-generating mind. So even before the level of a conscious story, these patterns become fixed. And unless we can unhook these patterns, there's a number of ways to do that, we are consciously operating in the present, but we're operating from the past. So, for example, stage fright, I can talk about now because I see it so much more clearly. And now it took me about five years to really transform that. Now I can help somebody with stage fright or whatever block, you know, five hours maybe, you know, Um, but, but what had happened is I was five years old. And I had an Easter speech to give. It was probably something like, you know, probably two lines, you know, yay, yay, Christ is risen, today is Easter day. I mean, something just incredibly simple for that, right? And I'm five years old and I'm dressed up and I go to the front of the church and there's all these people looking at me and I freeze completely. The words don't come out. My little five-year-old brain encoded that experience, because this is how our brains work, as life-threatening. And not only did that do it, it also encoded and memorized all the contextual aspects, the people looking at me, me on stage, et cetera.
1: Then a few years later,
0: I was in fourth grade and I won the spelling bee for the whole school and the school went to seventh grade. So it was a pretty big deal for a fourth grader to be, you know, going to the, the state spelling bee. I went to the state Spelling Bee, and I got on the stage and I ran off the stage. Same context, brain interpreting this is humiliating. And so it made sense that a few years later, me all by myself on the stage playing piano, the same pattern repeated itself. And so what's important to recognize is often those patterns are beneath the level of conscious attention or awareness until we have an opportunity to unpack them and heal them. The good news is there's so many tools available now that allow you to quite literally rewire the neurobiological pattern. This is why, you know, you have a lot of folks, coaches, you know, you'll work, have a client who does everything they possibly can do to make the change. They do the rethinking, they might do the Byron Katie work, they do the affirmations, they do the whatever, and none of it sticks. The reason it doesn't stick is because that brain circuit at some point in their life perceived a similar experience as life, I'll give you one more example and then um, that, that illustrates this point. I worked with a client whose issue was that her health and marriage were both in danger because she could never stop working. She would work through lunch. She would bring work home. She would work until all hours of the evening. And her health was, everything was fragile. She'd been trying to figure this out for years. She'd gone to therapy. She'd gone to coaching. She'd gone to counseling. She'd, she'd changed, her, ch- changed her thinking. She'd done affirmations, whatever. And we unhooked this in 20 minutes here's what happened i said so tell me about what it feels like when you are at lunch and you really know know you need to take a break and you can't she said she she made a gesture and she said i just can't stop and i said okay freeze that gesture right now and that feeling i just can't stop now i want you to float back in your past to the very first time you felt that way and she had sort of a surprised look on her face after a moment and she says, oh my God. It's the first, no, it's it's the first week of school in third grade. So now this woman is in her 50s, so this is something that happened, you know, 40 some years before. Yeah. It's the it's the first week of school in third grade. Oh, and I'm really sick. And my mother wants me to stay home, but I insist on going to school because I got a perfect attendance record. And it was that experience, that's what we call it. We call it a traumatically encoded memory. That experience was the reason that for 40 years, she was a workaholic. So I took her through literally a 10-minute process to unhook that memory from the emotion. She sent me a text the next day. She says, it's lunch. I'm taking a walk. You know, that that evening, she says, the next day, she says, I went home and we had dinner at 7 o'clock. And that pattern was dissolved forever. Now, mind you, she had spent probably 10 years and I don't know how many thousands of dollars trying to change the story. But it was this neurobiologically encoded pattern that once we identified it,
1: poof, you know. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, by the way, Harry, that you mentioned like the work of and Katie, which I'm very familiar with and that the the alignment there with like the three principles and just understanding, okay, that Mm -hmm. we're experiencing. When I say we're experiencing our thoughts, I don't necessarily mean that we're the linguistic thoughts that we have, but like the energy of our thinking, right. Which which I think we talk about the same thing there. We're experiencing (laughs) that. And so to me, it's like, I, I, for quite some time now not been a fan at all of perhaps any tools or techniques but really just helping people to understand well here's what's going on like that's what you're feeling there that's what you're experiencing and that's how you're creating your own reality of life and yes well i i would i would perhaps call them some habitual thought patterns neuro patterns exactly as you're describing and yet there i also notice well that's cool like i can notice that's what's going on <laughs> when i remember (laughs) so it's like okay i can even if i and the more the more we might question our thinking go through bar and katie's work or the more often we remember yeah we can get better at that but so often i'm just asked yeah, but how do i manage to do that every time and i think there's a way here for people to have that pattern dissolve then that's that's great that's great oh yeah Uh, can can i tell you the secret to that go for it yeah yeah, yeah sure oh yeah,
0: yeah. well well and, you know I, and I'm, I'm going to condense I'm going to give you like a 30 second answer to a three hour conversation yeah, yeah basically what happens is once you recognize the pattern and you feel it in your body you somaticize it so you identify it in your bad body and then what you want to do we'll, we'll call the recognition of the pattern like a red light you're in a red zone you're in a you're, you're in that zone where you're reactive and you're stuck in that very moment what you do is you radically relax that is you can do this by yawning and stretching you can do it with uh if you know eft tapping you can do it with with uh give like the havening technique is you you rub your arms or your your hands you do something that moves moves you across the bridge into parasympathetic activation that is re- deep relaxation and as you do that you fully engage your senses somehow so that means you might be yawning and stretching while you look around the room very carefully and describe the colors and shapes in the room or you might count down from 100 to zero by sixes or sevens or something to actively involve your cognition mm. And what will happen is as you are focusing, this is called the central executive network of your brain, focusing and completely concentrating while you also deeply relax, it begins to what's called reconsolidate that memory biologically. So you start unhooking the memory from the feeling. There's an interesting experiment that's done a few years back where they took people who'd been in a car accident, who were in an, in an emergency room, who were quite traumatized from the accident. And they had them do two things at the same time. They had them deeply relax, and they had them play the video game Tetris for 25 minutes where that it was cognitively demanding and focused. And they found that the people they had, they, that's all they did, that was the entire intervention. And they radically reduced the intrusive memories of the car accident. There's a number of other studies in er different areas, but they all point to the same combination. You remember what it feels like. You become aware of it. You deeply, deeply, deeply relax. You you do something to move into parasympathetic activation. And then you consciously engage your brain, your cognition, for it could be as little as three or four minutes. And over time, that here's the amazing part. It literally dissolves in your brain, in your neurobiology, the mechanism connecting that memory to the event itself. Yeah. Wow.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you. For so that. Any, of your,
0: any, of your, yeah. any of your people can do that. You, can, you get triggered, yeah. relax really deeply, focus on something that demands your concentration for like three to five minutes. Mm.
1: Beautiful. is there something that people could just google is there a phrase if people want to like look at that is there something they could perhaps just google
0: there's not a phrase for this because this is my own synthesis of a lot okay, of different cool. things uh but they can they can google for example they can google eft you know eft tapping mm,
1: yeah.
0: or um havening havening they can the, uh, or they can also they can contact me at my 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 email and contact which we can talk about later cool. um because i'm 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 developing i'm i'm I mentioned you asked me for a bio and it's like, well, I'm reinventing myself. I'm in the process of of, yeah. of consolidating and developing these tools and techniques. right That's now. cool.
1: Thank you for that. And the one thing I love about these conversations is I, I never really know where we're going to go. And, uh, you know, I, I've been because I recently I've been releasing a, a revisited series and just gone back to like three of my earliest guests. And, and that involved going back to really <clears throat> early conversations, including episode one. Kevin Waldron nice. and of course you get the natural cringe of, of that because uh you know <laughs> I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure if you if you were watched even your very first you know performance at a piano um whilst I'm sure there would be a you'd be feeling a lot of love and affection I don't know whether you would cringe or not but certainly it just it, it just reminded me that I used to have a whole bunch of rehearsed questions for this for these conversations yeah. whereas now yeah i kind of know the opening question or so and I, and i and i know yeah what is it that i'm curious about when i'm talking to this person and i guess that probably reflects in my coaching as well i see people publishing hey here's 100 powerful questions to ask your clients i think wow i tell you as you've already touched on your intuition your curiosity as an expression of your intuition is what's going to lead to your most powerful conversations How oh my you-
0: gosh yes because yeah if, when, when when you are when you are connected to that inner river of wisdom that is always flowing within you and then you're present in service to the other human being guess what happens <laughs> what you need shows up. And if what you need is one of the 37 tools you have in your back pocket, great. But if what you need is just to be in silence, it'll show up. If what you need is that question, if you trust deeply enough and you've done your own inner work, then it all unfolds in its own perfect order.
1: Yeah, and, and is that your you- experience? Yeah, for sure. And as we touched on before I hit the record button, like intuition and, and I loved what you'd asked me. And it was, a I, I can't remember the word you used, but it was, you know, what do I hope to get out of this conversation and what would I like to get out of this conversation and what had me like reach out to you. And as I said, I'll share, I'll share here. I've, I rarely have an answer to those questions now because I am following the intuitive nudge, the nudge from wisdom, if you like. I, I'm doing so much, much more of that. And so if one, what I've realized is and maybe this is what's always been going on. Maybe this really is what's always been going on. When I answer those questions, mostly I'm just making something up. I'm just making a story up. Okay. I've had this nudge. This is why I want to talk to this person. Let me, let me find some reasons. Whereas really I just, you know, well, I've reached out to you, Harry, cause there's something I got a feeling to do that. and, 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 I can use my intellect to come up with lots of reasoning. That's where we do all our reasoning and meaning making. But ultimately, I'm uh, just following. I'm uh, just following what we might call intuition, wisdom, whatever name we want to use. I cannot
0: possibly agree more with you because what's been happening in my life. You know, you you, you know, my mom passed away about seven months ago, and I took care of her in my home for eight and a half years. And I'm an only child, so I essentially took care of her by myself. In the last couple of years, she was her body and mind were diminishing through the, through the crisis of dementia. And this was Phil. It was an incredible boot camp for the soul because it took me to my very edges on every <clears throat> in every possible level. And one of the most important things that I learned through that, you know, because I also have experienced, we have these really difficult challenges in our life. And depending on how we see them, take them, process them, metabolize them, they can either become stones that hold us down or they become wings that that lift us up, right? And the blessing of this experience was that it forced me more and more and more every single day to develop a kind of whole-souled dependency on my inner wisdom to the degree that now at this point in my life as you talked about not having the question in advance i pretty much live my life and this is the most important lesson i learned from a life in music not about music but what music taught me about living as an instrument living as an instrument of the possible, of the creative process, an instrument of love, an instrument of relationship, an instrument of compassion. And I honestly believe, Phil, that 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 is why we are here in this experience, the human experience, so that we can get beyond, intellect's great, we can get beyond intellect and thinking and planning and all of that and grow to a place where we can be instruments of this cosmic, dynamic love force that is seeking to create one people, one planet under love. You know, that is seeking for... I, I wrote a, a, a poem that for me is like my whole message for the world that consolidates all this. And it's We have everything we need to build a world that works for all. We have everything it takes right now to answer freedom's call. When, with every word and deed we choose to let the love increase, then in every land and nation we shall live as one in peace." Every time you go from intellect to intuition, from head to heart, you're letting the love increase, and you're creating a space within yourself through which inspiration can move. And I know you've had this experience, because I've been in your presence, and I know your coaching clients have this, You will say the thing that is the thing that comes through you in that moment and they'll start to cry or they'll have an insight or their life will change. And you feel like I didn't really do anything. I just showed up. And this, whatever you want to call it, source, spirit, God, life, love, whatever, flowing through you as its instrument operates to remind that person who they are.
1: That's the name of the game, you know. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving your reflect. smile. I'm just seeing the Thank you. <laughs> yeah, just reflecting back, it's like, gosh, yeah, absolutely. You're you're just nailing it. That's how it looks to me. That's just so perfectly how it looks to me. And What a beautiful poem. Thank you so much, Harry. Let's let's. You've touched on it. The music piece. And, and again, I just have a sense. I don't even know what my question really is. It's like, oh, I want—I just want to know a little bit more. What was that like? You know, touring. Um, I could ask some really cliche questions like, what did you love the most and what wasn't so great? But I i, I just feel I'd love to know a little bit more. What's that like being a professional musician? Yeah, so, so, yeah, so let, me, let me go
0: back. Because, <laughs> yeah, because well, it's it's like 40 years. So I toured in the 80s. You know, and I was in my 20s, and I got to go all, all the world and play with, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and Freddie Hubbard and Bill Jackson and great people. And that was really good for that developmental time in my life mm-hmm. um, because what I was interested in at that time, as most people are in their 20s, you want to be really good. You know, and you want to, you you have a certain level of worldly ambition. You want to, you know, have a career, and you want to be seen and all that, and that was great. And so that that was a wonderful experience that I also found Lacking at the time, because I also realized that music is one important expression for me. But communication, teaching, mentoring was also another really important expression. And I find that if I only performed, I get stir-crazy for teaching. If I only taught, I get stir-crazy for performing. So I realized over time that they were both like wings of a bird. The developmental part was really significant, though, because first, the first motivation when I was a kid, it was just these, these, the black and white keys on the piano made all these amazing sounds. And it was just like, you know, a wonderland of, of creative exploration. Then the drive for excellence and mastery kicked in. And then ambition ca- kicked in for having a career and being better than others and everything. If, if I saw somebody who played well, who's my age, I'd get jealous. If they were older, I'd... Think, okay, I'll be able to kick their butt in a few years. If they were younger, I was, I was miserable. So I was, my, I was always in this egoic roller coaster between feeling pretty good about myself and lousy about myself. But then what happened, Phil, is most significant, is I lost it all. I had, uh, this is in the late 90s. And I lived in a house that had toxic mold. I'd also had some head injury because I'm six foot nine, which which means standing up is an occupational hazard. You hit yourself or hit your head on top of doors or whatever. Um, And so I I, I had the combination of the mold poisoning. I had adrenal um, fatigue. I had some post concussive trauma issues. And I sat at the piano. And it took me 10 minutes to find a C major chord. I mean, I was quite cognitively impaired for a while. I took a neuropsychological test. And I did well on some parts. And on some parts, I did very, very poorly. And so there was a period of about 10 years of rebuilding that had to go on. And at the very worst, the, and this was, this was like decades before I took care of my mom. So this was when I was in my 40s. There was a period of, at the worst of that, losing everything I thought I was. I lost my musical ability. I lost my intellectual capacity. I lost my creative capacity. I lost my physical stamina. So from the ego perspective, I lost everything. I had nothing. And what I noticed during that time is that I also became hypersensitive to energy. So if somebody walked in my room and I was sick and they had a smile on their face, but they were really anxious or angry, I felt weaker when they left. If I, if, I, if I ran into somebody like with your energy, good energy, I'd feel better. And I became hypersensitive to that. And so after a period of time, I began being able to play again, which for a while I didn't think I would ever be able to do. And when I started being able to play again, I started playing for individuals, often people who were elderly or sick or infirm. And I found so much fulfillment because playing the piano after having lost that ability was a miracle. And so the, my motivation for music went from fascination to excellence, to ambition, to losing the capacity, and then as it regained, to the sheer joy of connecting with others. And then it evolved beyond that, where now it is an act of communion with the source. And so the musical experience and speaking to you now and being in a state of prayer and working with a client and writing a post or a poem, they're all the same because they are all an expression of the same source.
1: I'm very moved by that. Thank you, Henry. I'm moved by it too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, I find that these days, all of my conversations come back to this one principle, which is that we are born to live as instruments of light, love, life, consciousness, source, love, compassion, creativity, love, <laughs> harmony. And the more, you know, Ram Das said this, you spend the first half of your life trying to become somebody, then you spend the last half becoming nobody. You know, it's like the work of the coach, just like the work of the teacher, the work of the musician, the work of the carpenter, the work of the, the painter, it's all the same work. It's to do the work, to develop yourself to the level that you can finally get out of the way and allow that which wants to serve through you in and as love to serve through you in and as love. And when you finally get that, the weirdest thing happens. Everything else starts to come into harmony. You don't have the conflicts or the blocks or the worries that you want. I mean, it certainly relates to the three principles teachings as I understand them. You know, when you're operating from that level it's not that your problems go away but the way that you see the problem dissolves its uh, its its presence as a problem
1: yeah
0: yeah you know
1: Mm. so i i kind of curious now is this a lead-in like there's a there's a huge subject (laughs) who who would if i talk in my British Suffolk accent, but anyway, there's a, there's a huge subject for for us to explore. Let's see how far we get with this time. Like, um, and you use this term racial injustice, and that actually stalked me in my tracks because um, of course I've seen those words before, but I'd been looking at, you know, this thing that's been going on in the world for hundreds of years, if not thousands, but hundreds of years, um, I, I realize, you know, there's been a lot of stuff that's actually wonderful world we live in now. It gets a lot of criticism, media and what have you, but the tools that we have now that enable, you know, something can happen on one side of the world and yes. so many people can become aware of what's gone on within seconds yes. of that happening. Like what a okay. wonderful opportunity that is for us. And of course, there's fake news abuse and all of that. I, I really don't want to get into that. However, this stopped me in my tracks, racial injustice. I realize I am, I'm gonna put it in quotes, but kind of ignorant. Like there's, of course, there's, there's so much about this subject that I, I, I probably cannot even come to know being, you know, a, a white British man who lived in the UK for 50 years. Um, and, and here you are, um, a black American, in the southern parts of the USA, there's it's it's inevitable. Like the experience that you have um, there is is going to give you such an incredible, incredibly different perspective and point of view to someone like me. This term, racial injustice, wow! I I I what even just the term had me consider. So I'll just share with you. Yeah. A little something here. like, I'd really just looked, I'd put the label on of racism, racism. Now I've not even Googled the term racism, right? I've come into this. I wanted to come into this as open as I could without any uh, contamination or whatever I'm like, and you just seeing your, just seeing those two words, racial injustice had me ask myself, okay, I, cause I, I read, we see a lot of this stuff in this international media, that some of which seem to me to be a denial, like attempting to deny our diversity and our differences, rather than acknowledging and celebrating them, celebrating them. And um, so I kind of wanted really, I'd love to hear from you before we perhaps we dive in, what what to you is the difference between like racism and, and racial injustice? Whether it's possible, like to me, I, I think well racism is is essentially hmm, looking at somebody's race and uh and perhaps making decisions or choices based on race. And to me that looks like that's that's inevitable but what we don't want is the injustice out of that. So I'm already starting to feel completely out of my depth, Harry. So perhaps we can start there. I know you're doing something with this as well. You've, you've got a, a uh, program coming up. Know, and- let me, let,
0: yes, let me start from a more universal standpoint so that we can establish that clearly because I believe that we live like Russian stacked dolls. There's mm. Each one of us has multiple, in, multiple inter, in, inter-nested identities. So you and I are both men, you know, the issue of gender and sexuality is, 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 is part of that. You're from Britain, I, from, I'm, I was born in the United States. So we have nationalities as an identity, we have the color of our skin as an identity. We have, we are two legged in a community of species on earth. You know, we are spiritual beings. So we have all of these interwoven identities which, through any given moment, we can look through. We can look out the eyes of that identity. And so the first thing I want to say is there's only one race, that's the human race. And I believe the human race is sacred. But the problem is we, I, we, we don't both embrace our variety and honor our unity. We err on one of those areas, those, those parts. So that's the, and you know, the, 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 I guess it was in 2000. Yeah. The, the genetic material came in with absolute clarity that there's only one race and you and I may have more genetic material in common than another Brit who has white skin or another person next door to me who has my brown skin. Okay. So that's given. So given that reality, there's only one race, we still, And I'm going to say that's the first thing. The second thing, before we talk about race specifically, racism, race prejudice, racial injustice, is a symptom just as environmental collapse is a symptom, just as predatory capitalism is a symptom, just as sexism is a symptom of a common dis-ease. The dis-ease is the human capacity to dehumanize the other, to make another person an object, or even to make Earth an object. And the solution, the only solution to dehumanization is a radical awakening of compassion. So I'm saying all that to set the basic framework to talk about racial injustice, all right, so that you understand where I'm coming from. Because whenever we, the other thing is we have terms now in our culture, whether it's race or Republican or Democrat or whatever terms that are now loaded, hmm. and so we tend to pollute those terms with our past preconceptions, and so we can't even talk about things because we're not talking with each other; we're talking at each other. You know, we're talking through these these um, these associations we have with the terms. So that's that's always a prelude. So when you look at the issue of race in the United States, because I can't speak to Britain, I don't know the history there. I grew up in Georgia, South Georgia. I went to segregated school for the first six years. And when I went to the Dairy Queen, which was like, you know, the, the burger joint, I walked around, across, around the block. I had to go to the colored entrance and order my food through the back. When I went to a pub, the Woolworths downtown, I couldn't sit at the counter with other people, and I couldn't use the bathroom. There was another bathroom on the outside that was marked colored for people like me. Right? I have experienced, you know, it's funny because after the George Floyd stuff in the, in the, in the a, few, a few months ago, I probably had 30 or 40 of my white friends, some of the people who've known me for like 40 years, and they just sort of basically said, oh, Harry, I just realized you're Black. Let's talk <laughs> you know, about these things. But, you know, I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful gesture, but it was, it was also kind of interesting. But I mean, because they it sort of, said, yeah, I mean, I've been stopped for quote-unquote driving while Black. I've been incredibly intimidated by police officers. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been, you know, like called out or made to walk a line or anything like that. Or I've been handcuffed, but I've I've had intimidating. I've been called the N word publicly. Um, I've had people respond to me in ways that were, that were inappropriate, based on their perceptions of my my skin color. But the issue is a deeper issue than the specific incidents. Part of what we're dealing with, Phil, here in the United States, and England in a different sense, but for. Hundreds of years in U.S. history, not only were people like me considered beasts of burden, but the dominant narrative and the history that was taught in the mainstream culture, that is the white dominant culture, was that my country, was pure and noble and had these wonderful ideas and ideals and was the living exemplar of all the world of what democracy is. And this is the same country that, I mean, I have a book called A Hundred Years of Lynchings. And it is actually newspaper reports. And you know what lynching is, right, you know, the phenomena. You hang somebody up in a tree, right, and What happened very often, especially about 100 years ago, up through the 30s and 40s, actually, is you would have a lynching and everybody would dress up in their Sunday best to go watch it. You know, like, you you know, and they would take selfies and they'd make the selfies into postcards that were souvenirs. And this happened while the dominant conversation or the image of the country was we are making the world safe for democracy. You know, so American history is rife with contradictions and perversions and distortions that have trickled down and the entire time people who are the Native American folks, the black folks, whatever, have seen these contradictions while the contradictions have been denied in the mainstream. So that's another big picture. What we're seeing currently is institutions and structures in a common dialogue or a common story that is finally beginning to break down a little bit. The common story of one race being all virtue, another race being all vice, the common story of one race being dominator and the other race being subservient, the, 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 story of one race having the intellect, the other race being emotionally driven, all of those stories are starting to break down and collapse. And we're in the middle of the
1: consequences of that collapse. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You sent me some copy, um,
0: before we go on, Tom, what did you get from what I just shared? Because I realized I just like laid a whole lot of stuff out there.
1: Well, something you said earlier on, really about diversity, unity, and I'm actually, whilst I've read it, I've heard it before, but I notice I'm sitting here just in would it be like the shock really that here I am, I'm, just, I'm sitting here talking to 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 a man. Um, I'm going to say a middle-aged man. I don't actually know how old you are, Harry, but... I'm, six, um, I'm 60. 60, 60 going on 25. 60 going on 25. So yeah, middle-aged man, right? And and yet what we're talking about, the segregation and stuff, that's not something that's 100 years ago. This is... No. You've, you've experienced this and and I think as i've said i, I i'm not going to really delve into why i guess have i avoided the subject is that has that been something conscious as i and and this is going to lead on to my next point so really yeah it's almost like wow i'm gonna have to I'll go back and listen to this again to really take that in what you've shared what you've shared because that in and of itself just my point of that gosh i'm talking to this guy that like this is, <laughs> we see police brutality as, as one example of what we're describing here. Um, yes. People like me, we can, we can, we can label ourselves as white privileged or what have you, but people like me have the, have a certain element of privilege of not being exposed to that other than through a computer screen or a TV screen. Yeah. And, and so I'm just like, I'm just in the experience of, realizing that that uh, that that's a real thing i'm just in that process harry like the yeah that that that's
0: the luxury that's the luxury at least in the west in the united states the industrial that's the luxury of having white skin
1: yeah yeah
0: because that's completely invisible unless some crisis happened and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's one of the that's one of the most promising things about this increased increasing awareness if it actually sticks you know because yeah. more and more people are interested okay well let me actually find out a little bit more about the lived experience of people I might have known for all my life but who have lived in a radically different world because of the larger society
1: mm-hmm. I heard these are so- moments on this yeah. I remember a few years ago when there was a something that went on and it just came into my awareness really of of sexual inequality. And like, Mm -hmm. there was somebody asked a very simple question, like how many men have walked down the street, you know, in fear of being sexually assaulted. And of course I I actually don't know of any man in that Mm -hmm. respect. And yet like most women had, and it's like, I had not, it's kind of one of those things yeah. that we just watch. It's almost like there's so much information that's scrolling by constantly, not just on our yeah. screens, but life generally. All this stuff is just scrolling by, and occasionally some things happen that just stop us in our tracks and uh, increase our awareness yeah. of that. So I wanna, I wanna like move forward with but, this. But, because...
0: but, 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 can, can I jump in before you go?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So just another example of that. I, I was at a a, a retreat, a business retreat, a few months back, and I was talking to a friend of mine. Who was also there? Wonderful, wonderful gentleman who um, is 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 white and lives in the the north northwest part of the uh, North American. And we were talking. He was asking me about this whole race. I said, "Well, do you remember when I was at that that that, um, that that conference, which was also in a in a southern state, right? Did you notice that I never like drove downtown or walked around the area by myself?" And he says, Well, it never occurred to me. I said, Exactly, that's the point. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't even go and shop in the grocery store in that town by myself, you know, because it's not, it, it wouldn't feel safe. Here in Louisville, Kentucky, a year ago, two people were shot point blank at a Kroger's by a white supremacist who just wanted to kill some folks that day. The Kroger's is literally about eight miles away, I've shopped there many times. Ahmaud Arbery, who's the guy in Georgia who was killed while jogging, I was, that's the, that's my hometown. And I was visiting that hometown one week before he was shot. And one morning I went to breakfast at a restaurant that was about maybe a quarter of a mile from my hotel. After I ordered my meal, I realized I wanted to go back to my room and get my notebook to take some notes. I literally ran from the restaurant to the hotel. Ahmed Arbery was killed about four miles away from that hotel. I was there. I could have been the black guy running that somebody saw and shot. And that's my... That's my in-the-skin lived experience every day.
1: And it's largely ignored, right, of people who...
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yes. yeah.
1: So that's where I want to, like, look next. Because as somebody like me, oh, I'm in the wonderful life business, helping people have the most loving, joyous life. Yes. So it's kind of easy for me. I have such privilege that I can, should I choose to, just overlook this let other people deal with that. And okay. So be that I'm wondering, like, what can we do as a coach or indeed in any, in any profession, there's something you wrote in the copy you sent me and I'm happy for you just to share what it is that you're up to and what you have on offer, but really that, you know, you said something in there, like in the, in the, in the midst of these significant shifts in public perception Many white citizens sincerely want to be part of a solution, but don't quite know where to start. So could you speak to that, Harry?
0: Yes. Well, the first place to start is to ask yourself this question, Phil. And I think you're, you're I don't know how old you are, but you're middle-aged too, right? Ask yourself sincerely the question, how is it that I have lived to this vintage in my life? And never take an interest in this issue. And whatever emerges from that will be your first step.
1: And for me, I'm I'm happy to share. It's like, well, there's a fear there. There's a fear there of some sort of like, well, again, it's like, I don't even know what I could do about that.
0: But let me ask you a question. If you went to the doctor and the doctor says, Phil, you have erraticus Germanus, right? Some whatever. And then the doctor said, Oh, I'm sorry, I gotta take a phone call. I'll see you later. What would you do when you went home?
1: What would you do? Before the days of Google. you would be
0: on Google. you would be on Google so quick. <laughs> Eradicate Germanus. Oh my God, what is it? Can I die from it? Whatever, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the question isn't about what can I do? The question is about really asking yourself the question why haven't I done anything? and then listen to whatever is the logical answer. So you look up, for example, what would you look up on Google if you wanted to learn something about what you could do around racism? That's not a rhetorical question actually.
1: Yeah, I, would I, I probably would go Google exact, exactly that. What can a white privileged know. man do about racism? About racial justice? what can a white man do?
0: You don't, even, you don't yeah. even have to call yourself privileged, you know? Yeah. Yeah,
1: but I'm asking you that question.
0: (laughs) Well, I I, I know you are, but the, the reason, the reason I'm asking you is that one of the things you will discover, and this is one of the things when you start unpacking the, the nature of how racial injustice works. What's happened recently, is many, many, probably millions of white people have gone to their one black friend or maybe their two and they said, oh, Jerry, Susie, Fred, Jamal, whatever. What do I do about this? And Fred or Sue or Jerry or Jamal is sitting there thinking, you know, why are they asking me? Because just like as a coach, When you want somebody to really dig within themselves and find that answer that you know what the answer is, but you know that you're giving it to them will not be nearly as powerful as they're coming up with the insight themselves. So why would we repeat that pattern here? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm gonna let you off the hook. I'm gonna give you some stuff to do. (laughs) I love it, I love it. My point point is that that reinforces the, the dynamic between the races, which has mm-hmm. been dominator dominated. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reinforces that dynamic, just as if you were um, in a relationship with someone that was a truly equal relationship. To what degree would you ask them What you needed to do in order, so you're in a relationship with a woman and you find out about sexism. You realize, oh my God, people are afraid. And then suppose you talk to the woman, you say, and she says, yes, I'm very afraid when I walk down the street. There's a place for asking, okay, what can I do that'll make you feel safe? But there's also a place for you going on your own time and investing the energy and focus. To educate yourself. What I'm saying is both. I I, I think one. Of, I think both of those are really really important. So the first thing you can do is you can Google, you know. And there's a wonderful book. I don't remember the author, but it's called Me and White Supremacy, which is like a 30 day self-exploration journaling kind of process. I think the. Um, yeah, I, f- I forget the lady's name, but it's a wonderful process, again, to help people unpack some of those things. But I, I would start there.
1: Let me ask you another question, Harry, because yeah, of course. I, I'm happy to open up and, and uh, you know. <laughs> I yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give I, you a lot of resources and everything. Yeah, I, 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 I'm happy to open up. Like, it's... Um, I ask my clients to to show up on calls with undefended openness, and I'm happy to lay out yes. and like. So, <clears throat> what I what do I notice in me is a reluctance to get involved in something that is so. I'm going to. Well, the word that came to mind is distasteful. This distasteful aspect of the human race, right? And I'm much more like, my work is all about, let's live the most loving, joyous life. Let's not, let's not participate in that which we don't want in our life. And, and you have the option of opting out. That's the whole point. Yes, thank you. That's
0: exactly the point. I, 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 not for one instant of one iota of one second of my entire life experience have the option of opting out of that conversation just like for a woman, you also can opt out from that conversation that she can never opt out from.
1: Thank you. And I I don't know that we need to say any more than that, just like that's for people like me, just to really like sit with that is, okay, so I want to create my most loving joyous life. Am I being that by opting out? Yeah,
0: because you can certainly opt out and it becomes, I mean, it, it all depends on what you're, what you, what, you, what you want your awareness level to be, you know, whether you want to, because I, I think what happens a lot of the times with all the, with the spiritual work is, especially if, if, if the spiritual work is being done by people who are somewhat privileged, whether they're privileged by race or class or, or whatever, um, is spiritual work becomes a putting on blinders to avoid that which I don't want to address. Now, I have a radically different experience of what spirituality is. For me, spirituality is ultimately expressed as what I call eyes wide open inner peace. That is, can you keep your eyes and heart and body and soul and mind and being completely wide open to the entire symphony that is the human experience, which includes horrific suffering, which includes injustice, which includes war, which also includes beauty and roses and... Love making and amazing, ecstatic experiences. It's like on the piano. There's low notes, high notes. There's discordant chords. There's consonant chords. Can you be fully present, open, undefended in the face of all of it? I, for me, that's spiritual power. Anything that we defend, dismiss, deny, deflect, indicates our own unwillingness to go deeper, it's my experience. It doesn't mean you do it all at once. I mean, one of the things I talk about, as I mentioned, I'm I'm, I'm developing a course specifically for white folks who want to bring their best self to the racial justice journey. And so like this book, 100 Years of Lynchings, you don't want to sit and read that in one sitting because it'll just, it'll blow your circuits, right? You want to titrate what you're able to perceive, but I, I believe that spiritual maturity is directly a result of how much you can expand your perceptual capacity to take in the joys and the sorrows of the world. And here's, here's, here's the kicker. And to do the work to find that place inside you that goes so deeply into your soul that you can bear witness to the most horrific suffering. Do your part to, 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 to help reduce it, but not collapse either into outrage, denial, numbness, or terror. For me, that that's, that's spiritual power. Otherwise, if your spirituality is, is dependent on you putting blinders on, sooner or later something's going to happen that's going to pull those suckers off, and then where's your spirituality? And I could talk about this for 75 hours, but I'm going to stop there. <laughs>
1: yeah conscious of the time harry this has been it's such a a moving conversation in so many ways i i want to kind of finish up on on with one person um this is in your life you you mentioned already and i noticed beautiful writings and lessons how does somebody um, I'm not even, I'm not even going to suggest that you attempt to summarize as such, but so you took care of your mother, as you said, for the last um, few years of her life, and eight, I would, and years eight and a half years, eight and a half years as a carer. And I would, I would, um yeah, I, I guess what I'm asking is I would like you to share, if you can, <laughs> I don't know, take as long as you want, of course. Um, that journey, what what that was like and what you have seen since, it's like an impossible question to answer, isn't it? In a single conversation, oh 10 minutes or whatever. But, you know, I, I'm just, I want, as I reiterate, I want my objective here, I think, is to have people get a glimpse even of who Harry Pickens is. And and I think that that happening in your life of course, has a huge impact. So could you, could you at least attempt to speak to, speak to that?
0: Okay, Phil, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to say, yeah, I, I mean, this is why I love you. This is one reason I love you, because everything about you, it's like there's two energies that just reek from your being. One of them is like this deep, profound kindness and compassion and love and joy. And the other one is like depth. You know, we couldn't have a superficial conversation if we tried, you and me. That's just, I mean, that's just like how you are. I, I, I love that about how you show up. And I remember when I first met you in 2014, you know, at, 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 at a coaching conference. That's, what, that's the first thing that touched me about you, the, the juxt- those two qualities. So, yeah, it's going to take me a minute to tell this story. But um, I'm an only child. And my mom was a single mom not the whole time. My father got kicked out of the house when I was four years old because he had an alcohol problem and he threw a television at me trying to kick me in the head. And that became unacceptable. We were living with my grandparents as well. And that was the end of my father. Um, he was, you know, he was banished from the house. My mom got divorced, whatever. And so my grandparents raised me and my mom. And my mother was a teacher by trade. Uh, she taught. And then for many, many years, she was curriculum supervisor in her in, in, in the town that she had see, we grew up in. And then later she moved to Kentucky to help take care of my aunt and my uncle. And she became a community college teacher teaching adults uh, elementary childhood education. So her entire life was in teaching. She, so she was also a carer, first for my grandfather for several years, then for my uncle and then for my aunt. When my aunt passed away in 2011, my mother was living in a little tiny town in Eastern Kentucky, uh, a coal mining town and I didn't want her to be there. And so I brought her in with me. The first few years were not so difficult. They were difficult in terms of transition, everything, but she was in fairly good health, uh, making an adjustment. And then she had a surgery that didn't go so well. And the surgery happened three weeks after I originally met you in October, 2014. And it was a surgery to repair her carotid artery, the artery in her neck. Um, and it didn't go well, she ended up having to have a second surgery because she had a baseball-sized blood clot in her neck, and she almost died. So what happened from that moment on, my mother became a different person. I I believe now, in retrospect, she probably had a stroke during that surgery as well because she, she cognitively and emotionally, she started going downhill slowly from there. So 2014, a few weeks after she came home, I realized that my life had changed dramatically. I realized that in order for me to care for her, and I mean, we had friends and everything, but I was the one who was responsible. I would have to give up traveling. I would have to severely curtail my work hours and I would have to reinvent my life from scratch because I didn't know how long she was gonna live But for the rest of her life, I had no life beside, beyond caregiving. So it was by far the darkest, most difficult period of my adult life, even eclipsing my years of physical illness or stage fright or whatever. And so this all became clear to me by the middle of November 2014, because my mother wasn't getting better, Phil. She was sitting in her recliner, not very present. Um, She wasn't doing her physical therapy. She lost her appetite. And I didn't know if she was going to die, stay the same, or maybe get better. This went on and on and on for a while. So one night I had a friend come over to be with her for an hour so I could go away and um, get a little bit of fresh air and clear my head. And I'd gotten to the point where at this point I was finding I was not sleeping well at all. I slept an average of like three hours a night the last two years of her life. That's another story. I wasn't sleeping. I was finding myself getting really irritable. And I was actually, if you can imagine this, I was so irritable that I would start snapping at people. And that's not my nature. Uh, And so I knew that something was really bad. My blood pressure spiked 20 points. um, And I was in trouble. So this night, my friend came over and had an hour, and I went over to walk in Cherokee Park, which is a really beautiful park designed by the guy who's designed Central Park. There's a number of parks here in Louisville who, who Olmstead designed. And I drove the whole way there, I'm asking my, who, who I, what I experience is God, God's source, spirit, whatever, you know. Okay, I need some help. I don't know if I can make it through this. You know, I need some help. And so I'm driving, I get there, I park. And it's like, okay. I remember reading in Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, every adversity contains within it the equivalent of a greater, a, a greater benefit. I said, okay, if that's true, if it's darkest before the dawn, if there's if there's some good in here, I need to know what it is because I can't stand this. I'm at my, I mean, I'm, I'm literally at my edge. I got out of the car. Phil, I don't walk more than 200 feet. I don't even get to the park where I, I, I wanted to hang out. I park and I start walking, and immediately the answer comes, and I hate it. Have you ever gotten an answer from Source or God, whatever that you just hate? Your your intuition says yes. This is what you do, and you said no. Right? So, (laughs) I mean, I was, I was, I was, but I knew it was true because it also came on like the, the intuition came on this like wave of calm and peace and ease, and I'm like, and it was this. Your job. Like your mission, should you choose, etc. Your job, Harry, is to become a bringer of joy. Joy, I have no joy. What are you talking about, God? You're talking. To, you're talking to the wrong dude. I got no joy. My joy was all drained out with the blood of my. My mother had that blood clot. I have. No, and then, like the voice, very silently, and softly, become a bringer of joy. It's like, okay, all right, fine. <laughs> so how do I do that? So I literally. The rest of that hour, I'm just driving around, and I'm saying, "Okay, all right, damn it, want me to be a bringer? All right, all right, fine." <laughs> you know, I'm like this little kid who, you know, got sent to the room or whatever. But I start thinking, Phil, and I think, "Okay, seriously now, how did I go from stage fright to confidence? What I did is I practiced." remembering, recalling, and amplifying my positive performance experiences. So I'd have a day, and I'd be practicing in the practice room, and I'd, I'd do pretty well on this passage of Beethoven or jazz or whatever. I'd feel really good. I'd write it down at the end of the day. And the end of the day, I would literally rehearse that moment until I could pull that feeling up at will. How did I recover when I was really ill. Well, the most important thing I did when I was ill for almost 10 years was mental rehearsal and talking to the organs of my body and infusing positivity there. So I get home. And by the time I get home, I've made two decisions. Number one, from here on out, as long as it takes, when I walk into my mother's room, I'm going to express joy. I might tell a joke. I might take a ukulele and play a silly song, I might do something, but I am going to do whatever I can to fake it for a while. The other thing I started doing is I started making a notebook. And I literally the first day I'll never forget it, I got home. I said, okay, when have I felt joy, damn it, <laughs> you know? And I remembered a moment in the cafeteria about four years earlier at the Governor School for the Arts, where I'm an artist in residence. And I was there with several of the um, staff and faculty, we were cracking jokes. That was the first event I wrote down. I wrote down five moments of joy that night and I I, I did not go to sleep that night until I could recreate those feelings. So make a long story bearable because it's gone too long already. I did that, Phil, every single night for about six, seven months through the spring of 2015. My mother didn't improve a lot physically. She was still struggling, but she was beginning to recover to some degree. I realized by April or May that next year that I had cultivated a capacity that I did not know was possible, which means I had cultivated the capacity to access joy on demand. That doesn't mean I was joyful 24-7, but what it meant is I had rewired, re-sculpted my neurology, my physiology, to experience and be the experience of joy with much greater consistency than I ever thought I could. And then fast forward now four years, it's November, four days before my mother dies. It's a Wednesday morning, and now I'm sleeping about three hours a night consistently because she, she was sundowning by this point. For, the, if those are, for me, sundowning is a phenomenon in dementia where the person gets agitated really early in the morning. So it might be one or two or three. And if, they're, if, they're, if, they're, if, they're, if they can move, they'll probably get up and walk around the house. Some people get up and go to, you know, they're, they're walk, they walk out the door there on the street. My mother was bedridden. But she'd get very anxious. And so she would moan or she'd start talking, hallucinating or whatever. And I would have to get up two, three in the morning. Every morning. This particular morning, she's moaning. She's under hospice care and she's dying. We know that. But she still has some lucidity. So she needs to go to the bathroom. I help her. You have a bedside commode. Sit her on there. She's there trying to go to the bathroom. She can't go. I go down the hall to go to the bathroom myself. I come back. And finally, she's able to go. The moment she finishes going to the bathroom, trying to help her, she collapses into my arms. At that moment, I thought she died. But she, she apparently had a massive stroke. Last thing. So I pick her up, put her in the bed, make sure she's OK. She seems to be resting. I go back to bed for a couple of hours. A couple of hours later, I hear her. She's panicked. Her eyes are open. She can't speak now. She's lost her capacity to speak, but she has terror in her eyes. And I put my hand on her heart. Her heart is palpitating and skipping beats. And Phil, the most remarkable thing happened. I had only slept a few hours. That morning, my mother collapsed in my arms. I didn't know what had happened because she was under hospice care. So it wasn't about going to the ER and attempting anything. It's just like what happens is going to happen. And in, I, I stop, I put my one hand on her heart, and I take my forehead, and I put my forehead on her forehead, and I whispered, I said, It's gonna be okay, baby, I'm here, I love you. All I felt in that moment, Phil, was peace. And I knew in that moment that my work, five that started five years before, when I was given the instruction to become a bringer of joy, I knew I'd fulfill that because I was able to be with my mother in this vault. That was the last time she, her eyes opened. Her eyes were open that morning. And earlier that morning was the last time she spoke. She died four days later. I was able to be with my mother in that moment of profound suffering. And all I felt and all I brought and all I embodied was a vast state of peace. And so what I learned from that, the whole experience, caregiving, that illness, the, my intuition telling me to become a bringer of joy, the work I did after that. The French philosopher Albert Camus once said, it was, in, it was only in the midst of, in, of winter that I found in myself an invincible summer. I found my invincible summer through the process of caregiving. I found a deeper connection with that part of me that knows. And I realized that I could sculpt my neurology in the image and likeness of my highest ideals, given enough effort and agency and diligence. And besides the love and the kindness and the wonderfulness that my mother gave me, that was the ultimate gift. I found something inside me that was stronger than anything outside me. And that's the gift that I hope to, to impart to others when I coach and work with them and teach and share. It's the greatest gift I ever had. And it came out of the darkest, most difficult place.
1: Hmm. Gosh, beyond beautiful, Harry, really. Um, I have, I don't have any words other than just just this feeling of immense love, appreciation and gratitude for you. And, um, you know, I think every human being has beauty within them. I'm so, gosh, I'm so grateful I'm alive at the same time as you and get to so witness you <laughs> expressing that beauty out into the world in, in in the form that is Harry and has become Harry. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time out today and sharing a little bit of you on the Coaching so podcast. Welcome. So welcome. Pretty beautiful conversation, Harry. Um, how can people get in touch, get in touch with you?
0: Well, there's two things. Number one, follow me on Facebook. I post lots and lots of um, articles and thoughts there. And the other thing I would be happy to do is I have a
1: series of
0: um, blog posts that are all about awakening to one's own intuitive potential and so forth. I'd be happy to send anyone who listens to the podcast. They just need to send me an email at harrycpickens at gmail.com harrycpickens at gmail.com and just put Phil in the in the subject line and I'll be happy to send them um, a document that summarizes some of the things we've talked about today and shares some of my ideas about how we can face this moment of personal and planetary challenge with, with power and presence and possibility.
1: Thank you so much, Harry.
0: You're so welcome. Thank you.
1: Wow. I'm not even going to attempt to summarize that conversation with Harry. There's so much in there. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to going back and listening to it again. Um, I'd be taking away a lot from that. It moved me. It challenged me. It was uncomfortable at times. But of course, there was that real beauty about the conversation too. There's a real beauty about Harry. So, so grateful for him. I'd love to hear from you. Um, What's your one thing? I'm sure you'll be taking away many things. What's your one thing that you could share with me that you're going to use in your prosperous coaching life? Please do get in touch. And also you can help me um, help this podcast find its way to other coaches just like you by leaving a brief and honest review on apple podcasts that makes such a difference particularly when people are searching for um, podcasts around coaching if there's something with a lot of reviews apple seems to promote those podcasts more than more than others so that will make a huge difference if you can do that and if you do do that please reach out let me know i'd love to thank you personally okay i hope you've enjoyed this conversation thank you once again for listening i wish you much love and joy